had this song in my head all week long. I'll bet some of you know it. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. That was good. You do know that song. Some of us have been singing that song for a long, long time. Or maybe I should say we started singing that song long ago. Probably don't sing it as often now as when I was, what, probably four or five years old singing that song as a little boy in Sunday school. What I didn't know then that I think I understand a whole lot better now is the theological significance of that song. I'm sure we sang about a little light because we were little people at that age. To be honest, I'm I'm not even sure that at age four or five, I really knew what that song was about. I certainly don't remember being that age and remembering what that song was about. But I know now, as I think many of us do, the light is the presence of Jesus Christ in my life, in your life. As as the children of God, his presence becomes a light in us to our world. And, And here's the deal. It's not a little light. It's a significant light. In many ways, it is a huge light. According to John, it's the light of the world. The light that pierced our dark, broken, sin-filled world. So, allow me to use my spiritual gift for a moment. That's pointing out the obvious. And just say to you what you already know. Thanks. Do you know what it is that light does? It shines. Light shines. <clears throat> it, it illuminates things. It, it exposes things. That's, that's what light does. By virtue of its presence, things are seen differently when the light comes on. Unless, of course, it's covered or it's blocked. That's another verse of that song. Hide it under a bushel? Thank you! (laughs) Golly! Exactly! Which is the sentiment that we ought to sing it with. No way! That's absurd! Why would we hide the light? Not going to hide it. Not going to cover it up. Light needs to do what light does. It shines and illuminates. It exposes darkness for what it is, which is the absence of light. The reason that song, I think, is so theologically significant is because it suggests in the mind of a little child singing it for the first time, reminds us that we have responsibility in promoting the shining of the light in our lives or through our lives. That, that indeed there are things that, that block the light 
that cover the light. But it ought to be a passion of the people of God that the light shines. Let it shine. Don't hide it. Don't put it under a bushel basket. Don't let Satan blow it out, is what we used to sing. And so we're going to conclude our series this morning in Isaiah 9. What I have called all along light for daily living. And if you you follow the church lectionary, the calendar... Uh, you know that up until today, we have been in the season of what's known as Epiphany, the celebration of the manifestation, manifestation of Jesus to the Magi. And, and the church, historically, at least in, in many sectors, has understood that symbolically as the manifestation of Jesus to Gentiles. And he was found by those Gentiles from the Far East who followed what? A star that lighted the way for them, if you will. Hundreds of years before the Messiah was born, the prophet announced the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Those were words of hope. Those were words of promise spoken to the people of Judah. And and we've said, even though hundreds of years before the Messiah came, the one who would be called those things. Promise spoken to the people of Judah, excuse me, but also for Gentiles. So we've looked at each of those titles given to the child who would be born. Seeing each one of them through, rightly so, through the lens initially of what did this mean to those who were living in Judah at the time? Because after all, it was spoken to them. And so we always need to ask that question. But because it's God's word, we understand that there is a larger application and there is meaning for all who read it. We've considered its meaning for us those who live with what I think is an incredible blessing of increased knowledge that the people of Judah did not have. We have the revelation of Jesus. We have his life. We have the the teachings of the New Testament. What an opportunity for us to to understand these titles, I believe, in in a fuller way and their application to our lives. So, Nothing new this morning. Some reminders and and a little bit more application for us as as we close our time together. I want us to look again at each one of these titles, be reminded of their significance, and I want us to look at it through those words in particular that introduce those titles, He will be called, and He will be called. Wonderful Counselor. And He will be called Mighty God. And He will be called Everlasting Father. And He will be called Prince of Peace. Now let me ask you, as I did earlier in the series, who is it that is calling Him these things? The saints. Yes, us. It's the people 
of God who will call him these titles because those words imply a knowledge of the one to be born. It carries the tone of, of announcement or proclamation. It's, it's not unlike the voice that was heard when Jesus came up out of the waters of Jordan and people there heard a voice saying, this is my son whom I love. This is the son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. It's, it's that sort of announcement. It's that sort of, of proclamation. When the people of God live in relationship to Jesus as wonderful counselor, as mighty God, as everlasting father, as prince of peace, they are announcing. They are making a proclamation, this is who he is. Whether we verbalize it or not, this is who Jesus is for me. And living in relationship to Jesus in that way, I think, shines a light into the lives of people who live in the darkness. Now, let me just say right up front, <clears throat> there's a couple of ways that we can shine that light. We could shine it gently, or we could just blast a floodlight into their faces and hope that they get it. I tend to think that it is a gentle shining of the light that comes as a result of the light within us that is going to make, can I say, the most significant kind of impact? I, I don't know that. But do you like it when bright lights are shining in your eyes? Oh. What do you think about the guy who's coming down the road at you in his car and you're blinking, you know, turn the high beams down and he doesn't you think nice things about that person, don't you? It's uncomfortable. I, I think that... As silly as it sounds, we need to think in terms of a gentle light that is illuminating things and giving people opportunity to see things that they haven't seen before. And if the bright light is so blinding, you can't see anything. And so we're talking about a, a gentle light, a light that is promoted by the Spirit of God, living in our lives. Living in relationship to Jesus in a way that shines the light of who he is into the darkness and the futility that is so present in the world in which we live. Now, our text this morning is going to come from Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul has been making his case through Ephesians for the amazing grace of God. Ephesians 1 and into chapter 2 um, have some pretty bleak descriptions of humanity apart from Christ. And so it is that bleak description that just buoys his case for how amazing and undeserved the grace of God is to all who believe in his Son for salvation. So he's made that case. He has prayed for them up just right before this text, that they will understand how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. The idea is, it's all-consuming. 
The love of God in Christ Jesus is everywhere and it impacts every dimension of life. It's bigger than we know. And he's urged them to live lives in response to this, to what they understand God has done for them in Christ. He's urging them to live lives, he quotes it as worthy of all of this, which includes being completely humble and gentle and patient in our lives, bearing with one another in love. That's what Paul writes. And then we read our text. So let's stand together and read it, shall we? Together. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed." That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> Some great language in there. Rachel, can we put up the, uh, the next slide? Maybe. There it is. All right, so we started out hearing these words together. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Paul is writing to Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles. And so as silly as this question sounds, I want you to talk about it because it it just struck me. Ironically, Paul is writing to the, these words about Gentiles to Gentiles. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he writes the things about Gentiles to the Gentiles? See what your neighbor thinks. All right, what do you think? I think it's one of the strangest questions I've ever asked. Catherine, <laughs> I see that hand. <laughs> okay. Good, good. What else? What else do you think? What, what struck you? Lead a life that is different. There was another hand. Sam? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Any other observations? Changed people being called to something new. No longer living as pagans. But being people of change, it's... <clears throat> you know, the, it's, it's one of the times in, in Scripture where it seems like 
and, and, and commentators have some interesting discussion about this, that, that the word Gentile seems to be used here as both an ethnic designation of people, that would be non-Jews, Ephesus was, was populated at least by, primarily by those who were not Jewish, but it's also used as a moral designation of people who are without the light of Christ. And so he's exhorting a group of people who are primarily Gentiles, ethnicity, to live contrary to how Gentiles, morally bankrupt, live. In other words, live a life that shines the light of Christ into the world in which you are living. How is that? Well, the Gentiles, he says, have given themselves over to sensuality. Excuse me. They indulge in every kind of impurity with continual lust for more. Sensuality, my friends, is is the root, it's it's rooted in self-gratification. So if I can just make this blanket statement, Paul is saying that people without Christ live for themselves. People without Christ live for themselves. Which is precisely why people need Christ, because living for self is at the root of all sin. Life lived for myself versus life lived for God who created me for himself. Christ died so that we can be free from the bondage of living for self. It's the default mode. It's what we do. And so Christ's death makes it possible for us to be free to be those new creatures that Jim mentioned, Paul's words to the Corinthians. New creatures who no longer live for self, but live for God. Paul writes that people without Christ are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. It's great language. It's, it's, it's light and darkness language. It's literally talking about their living life in the dark. The light is not on. It is not shining in to their situation. They need to see the light of Christ. And where is the light of Christ? The light of Christ is in his people. And so it's as his people live their lives that the light of Christ is shown to others who live in darkness. So, how does that happen? I would say keep it gentle. You know, don't crank up the strobe light. But I believe that these titles that we've talked about are are wonderful ways for us to, to live more intentionally into the light of who Christ is and allow that to spill out of our lives into the lives of those who are around us. First, let me remind you of just wonderful counselor. We can shine the light of Jesus to the lives of others by living in a way that proclaims Jesus 
as the wonderful counselor. And that means, we've learned, that we embrace him as God's plan for the salvation of lost and sinful people. We live in such a way that others begin to understand and maybe not agree with and maybe not appreciate, but we live in such a way that they begin to understand that Jesus, for us, is Savior. The wonderful counselor is our Savior. We learned, remember, the Hebrew word for counselor is a word that's used often in ancient literature for military settings, describing one who has a battle plan. To proclaim that Jesus is a wonderful counselor is to affirm that he is God's battle plan. In him, in him, there is victory. Victory over sin, victory over eternal death. Now, this can be unpopular. And it can be a a very piercing light in our dark world for for a couple of reasons. First, the, the, the use of the word salvation suggests that something is wrong. That someone or something needs to be saved or fixed. We live in a culture that can easily be offended by that because we live in a culture that believes humanity can fix itself. It can't. Paul describes people without Christ as having lost all sensitivity. They are unaware of the gravity of their situation. It's like the band playing as the Titanic was sinking. You know, people are going to die. This is no time for singing and dancing. And so, those of us who embrace Christ as wonderful counselor are embracing him as God's perfect plan for salvation. It leaves no room for other spiritual pathways. That too can be very offensive. No room for a person's effort to reach God in ways that that make sense to them. Jesus as the wonderful counselor suggests a right way suggests really an only way to be in relationship with God. And those are Jesus' words, not mine. And that will often make us unpopular with people. But again, are we shining this light in a strobe-blinding sort of a way? Being rather obnoxious in the way that we do it? Or is it just a gentle little light that emanates from our lives because that's who we are based on that's who we believe Jesus to be. And again, but for God's grace, we would still be wandering in the darkness, bumping around and looking for the door. If we believe that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, then we, we must proclaim it 
in the lives that we live. Sometimes proclamation is words as the Spirit leads. I think more often it's the way in which we live as, as people know us and observe our lives. What do they observe to be our priority in life? Do they begin to get the idea that Jesus is really important to us? Or is it just an occasional thing? Jesus is really our highest priority, or is he somewhere down on the list? It seems to me that, that we as God's people want to be conscious about making Jesus the center of everything that we do. Nothing being more important than who he is to us. That is a light that will shine into people's lives. Some will be interested because they'll see what it's illuminating in their own lives. Others will be offended because of what's illuminating in their own lives. You know, there's another truth about this, and I won't take as long with all of these. This one was our first one, and I, I, just, I was remembering some of the things we talked about. The, the other truth that I think can encourage the light to shine on others is as they observe in our own lives who we listen to in life. Does that make sense? You know, where, where are we turning for counsel and for instruction? To whom do we listen to for, for hope and encouragement? You know, the, the wonderful counselor who is God's plan, we said from the very beginning, also has a plan for our daily lives. And, and that is that we would live in a wholehearted faith commitment to Him to be everything to us that He has promised to be for the sake of both this life and the next. Is Christ our source of life on a daily basis? Are we trusting Him? Are we surrendered to Him? Are we willing to live into those difficult places believing that that is who He has called us to be, to be His presence, to, to be His people who are, who are submitted and surrendered even though life is difficult, even though there are circumstances to which we don't have answers, even though our personal future or economic situation is not certain. Who are we listening to? And as others just observe our lives, what do they hear? What do they learn about who's important to us and and who we are listening to and, and turning to for counsel and hope? Secondly, we, we talked about Jesus as mighty God. And I, I think that this is another way that, that our light can shine, that, that the light of Jesus in us can shine into the lives of others as, as our lives live and proclaim or announce Jesus as mighty God. It's important to remember, and we've talked about this as well, that we live in a world that promotes might and power in ways that bring people into control. 
it, it promotes power that, that is over, that causes people to submit and to surrender, causes them to behave. We want people to behave. Okay, I want people to behave. Maybe you never experienced that. You know, I just have a whole list of activities that people ought not to do. And if only they'd listen to me, I would set their lives straight. Obviously, you never feel that way. We live in a world that promotes power over. We serve a God who has come into our lives and a Savior who lifts us up. God's power is a power that comes under and lifts the lost and the broken and the flawed and lifts them up to a place of glory and honor called children of God. But it happens in a very mighty, humble way. And I think that is, that is probably one of the most profound things that we believe about Jesus as mighty God. Remember that text from Colossians 1 is a wonderful passage that, that just exalts the greatness of Jesus and, and who he is and all that he's done, creator of everything by him. Everything was made, all things made by him and for him. And yet, the plan of salvation comes to the world in the most humble outrageously humble way. That God would humble himself and put on our skin and live among us. I don't think it's a secret why the scripture reminds us in numbers of places, Old Testament, James picks it up again as he's quoting the prophets. He tells us that God despises the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Why? It's because in the revelation of Jesus, we see a humble God. That to me is is just mind-blowing. Paul exhorted the Philippians to be like Christ in their thinking and, and their attitude for daily living And then he goes on to say, be like the one who left the glories of heaven, came to earth to live a life of humility and suffering for which when it was all done, then the Father exalted him. Do we live, do I live, do you live on a daily basis with a a willingness to, to trust God to exalt me when it is his time? Because frankly, I, I just, you know, I always think it's time for me to be exalted. You know, let's... Let's go, God. Time's ready. You know, it's time to be great, right? That's the culture in which we live. And Jesus comes into the midst of that culture. God incarnate humbles himself and serves. Do we ask the Spirit of God who indwells us as his people to search out and reveal to us those places of pride, those little pots of of desire within us that want to be exalted and thought well of. The light of Jesus, brothers and sisters, I think will shine brightly into the lives of others when we grasp 
that our mighty God made himself vulnerable to sinful people, allowed himself to be rejected and mocked and crucified by those he came to save. You know, here's an irony. As we model our lives after the one who humbled himself, we may find that we are ridiculed as well for our humility, for our willingness to to be taken advantage of, for our willingness to be thought less of, for our willingness to, to not fight back. We may be made fun of for our silly beliefs. It's an irony because that's exactly how Jesus was treated. I know that so well. And yet so often it seems when my anger is bubbling up inside of me, when that sense of I don't deserve this is bubbling up inside of me, like he deserved any of that? But that's our humanness. I think that's the residue of our sin nature that collides with what the Holy Spirit is wanting to shape and form in each one of us. And Jesus said, great irony, we would be blessed when we are falsely treated and persecuted for his sake. It's almost as if you can hear Jesus looking down at his kids who are living lives of humility and, and saying, oh yeah, I like that. Now they're looking like me. Now they're acting like me. Third way that we can shine the light of Jesus into the lives of others is by proclaiming announcing with the lives that we live, Jesus is the everlasting Father. And, and, and we, we wrestled with this one a little bit. Remember, we, we recognized the mystery of, of, of the Trinity. You know, as Orthodox Trinitarians, we, we understand the, the separateness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet there is an intimate oneness that exists within the community of God that makes them one, separate but one, one but separate. That's the best I can do. It's the best that the church fathers can do with it. You know, it is a mystery that hurts our brains, and yet it is a mystery that is so central to what we believe about God so that when Jesus comes into the world and reveals to us the character of God, he reveals to us a father, a heavenly father. Says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Grants them permission, exhorts them, when you pray, pray like this. Our father who is in heaven. Paul takes it a step further and, and gets outrageously intimate in Romans 8. When he talks about the children of God are those who have been given the Spirit of God by which they cry out, Abba, Aramaic for Daddy. Oh my gosh. That is so intimate. It's frightening. It certainly was to the Jews who heard that. To address Yahweh as Daddy would have been a no-no. Paul says, do it. Jesus gives us permission. Are we daring enough to address him in such intimate terms? Do we make much of God as Father? Do we understand him as the good Father that he is? Are we willing to push through our broken understanding of Father 
Are we willing to, to push through, for many of us, our painful experience of a really lousy earthly father in order to allow the Spirit of God to begin to shape in us, reshape, perhaps, our thinking and our understanding of a good, good father? And as we're willing to do that, the light of Jesus revealing to us the character of everlasting father, everlasting caregiver, everlasting nurturer, everlasting provider, everlasting presence with us, one who actually enjoys being with his children. Are we allowing the Spirit of God to reshape our thinking into those kinds of images related to God as Father. Oh, man. And that, that is a light, I think, that many, many people in our world need to see. It's scary as heck for some to think that God is that close and that intimate. But again, as that light shines gently from our lives, perhaps it begins to illuminate for them things that they have not seen before. And lastly, we can shine the light of Jesus into the lives of others by by living in a way that proclaims Jesus as the Prince of Peace. We talked about this last Sunday, and and I I hope I hope that, that you heard clearly that the peace that Jesus promises to bring is not the peace that we tend to think of most often in our human-to-human relationships, a lack of or an absence of conflict or, or violence. Um, because we know that, that Jesus came, and, and as a result of his coming, there was a lot of conflict and a lot of violence. Um, his very presence, just, just his name can cause all kinds of discord and and lack of harmony, absence of peace. I want to remind you that that biblical peace is shalom, rooted in the Hebrew understanding of what it means to be, to live in the presence of God. Where God is, there is safety. Safety. Where God is, all is well. Particularly where God is in relationship to those who are rightly related to him through his son. It is well with their soul. Jesus came to become our peace with God. Even when things are in chaos all around us. We have peace because it is well with me. Jesus has brought us peace with God and there is nothing that can change that. And in a sense, I I see this one as sort of bringing us full circle back to the idea of wonderful counselor. Because the one who is the plan for our life, as we've said, also has a plan for our daily lives. And Jesus, I believe, set the example for his followers 
to be those who would live out the values of the kingdom of God. And we heard that verse last week from Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called or identified as children of God. Jesus sacrificed his life to bring peace between sinful humanity and holy God. Brothers and sisters, what are we willing to sacrifice? What do we need to sacrifice in our own lives as God begins to reveal things to us that will allow us to be peacemakers who are identified as children of God? Maybe there are things that that we're holding on to in relationships, be it marriage, be it family, be it work relationships, just can't get past that knothead at work that makes your life miserable or that fellow student in the classroom or, or wherever. It seems to me that, that if we are really surrendered to the work of the Spirit in our lives on a daily basis, asking for it, Spirit of God, show me the inconsistencies with what I say I believe about Jesus and how I live. Trust me, He will. He will do that. And as he begins to do that, we begin to find ourselves more and more blessed by a growing, I think, awareness of his presence and his love and his blessing in our lives. I think I told you this story years ago, um, but I want to end with it because for me it's, it's always the image of, of life lived with an awareness of who Christ is for me, and, and adding to that these descriptions that we've talked about. You know, Christ Jesus as being the wonderful counselor, being the mighty God, being the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace in my life. It was the engagement. Remember the story of Luke and Jessica? my number three son and his wife. And I'll just never forget, after the whole thing is played out, we're all sitting around in our house, and Jessica, of course, was incredibly uh, surprised, completely surprised, blown away by, by the plan that Luke had put together. And she just couldn't take her eyes off of her ring. She kept saying, I'm engaged. I'm engaged. I'm engaged. I mean, it was just, it was her mantra for the rest of the night. I'm engaged, you know? And her feet were hardly touching the ground as she floated around the house. And, and as we were sitting there together talking and having a different conversation, Kelsey says to Jessica, who has only been engaged for about an hour, maybe a half an hour at that point, so Jess, uh, any, any ideas of when you might set a wedding date? Well, Jess doesn't hear that because she's busy looking at her ring. And then she hears the voice of her beloved, Luke, who says, well, Jess, what do you think? Maybe, uh, maybe a fall wedding? Would that be too early? Jessica's response, classic, as she's looking at her ring, says, oh, I don't care, Luke. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. the key. 
That's the key, brothers and sisters, to, to living out the light of Jesus in our lives to others. We are so intentional about being with him and making much of who he is in our lives that more and more the reality of the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting father and the prince of peace comes to bear in our lives so that as chaos abounds around us in our lives and in our world, we are so secure in the one who has called us to himself that we can live lives for the sake of others because it's no longer about us. We're all okay. Amen? Praise team, why don't you come and prepare us to respond. Father, Thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity to to study these rich titles of the Lord Jesus in these weeks together as we we begin in the church calendar to, to move towards the season of Lent. We understand, at least in our theological heads, that Lent is all about Jesus and his sacrifice. And and we wanna we want to be reminded of that and we want to focus on that. But what we really want, what I want for my life, what I want for my brothers and sisters here is that the incredible truths that we will be reminded of in this Lenten season, that they might impact us and grab our hearts and take us and shape us in ways that the light of Jesus flows from us every day in every situation, touching the lives of others, who need to be illuminated by the truth of who he is. We ask in his name. Amen.